0: Welcome to BDO in the boardroom, a podcast series for board of directors and those charged with governance. Each episode features a topical discussion with board peers and subject matter experts on both trending and timeless boardroom issues, covering a myriad of issues, including, but not limited to mitigating risk in the increasingly digital world, navigating your board career from landing your first board seat to succession planning in support of the next generation, to other top of mind issues such as ESG reporting, shareholder activism, and the insights we share through the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Let's get started.
1: I'm Amy Rojic, director of BDO Center for Corporate Governance, and I'm so happy to have the chance to sit down with Vanessa Teitelbaum, Senior Director of Professional Practice at the Center for Audit Quality, or CAQ, to discuss the critical role audit committees play in integrity of capital markets and how transparent disclosures about their oversight practices can provide significant value in the protection of investors. So Vanessa has been with the CAQ for five years, and the CAQ is a nonpartisan public policy organization serving as the voice of US public company auditors and matters related to the audits of public companies. As an in-house expert and resource on auditing and accounting practice issues, Vanessa leads task forces comprised of audit partners and technical experts from the public company audit profession relating to proposed standards and other current issues facing the profession. Projects have included development of the CAQ's audit quality disclosure framework, preparing for the new credit losses standard, a tool for audit committees, and the external auditor assessment tool, among other publications. Vanessa has facilitated responses to proposed standards and regulations related to quality management, supervision of other auditors, quarterly reporting, the accelerated filer definition, as well as independence. And before joining the CAQ, Vanessa spent 15 years at PricewaterhouseCoopers and Dixon Hughes Goodman, leading audit teams of both large and mid-sized companies in a variety of industries, including technology, manufacturing, and financial services. And as part of the CAQ's Advisory Council, I've had the pleasure of working closely with Vanessa for the past several years, and I'm really happy to have the opportunity to get her thoughts for our audience today. So, Vanessa, welcome to BDO in the boardroom.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Amy. All right.
1: Jump right in and just start us off with thinking about the SEC rules audit committees of public companies have an annual responsibility to publicly describe at a minimum certain aspects of their oversight of independent auditors and the audit process and the resulting financial statements which are included within the annual report as well as their own independence as defined by applicable stock exchange listing standards. The CAQ has recently released its annual Audit Committee Transparency Barometer. So Vanessa, I'm hoping you can provide a bit of background about the studies and their importance.
2: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So we did just release our eighth annual um, Audit Committee Transparency Barometer. Uh, It's a report that we publish uh, in partnership with Audit Analytics. um, And we uh, review the S&P 1500, and we break out the results um, of the disclosures by S&P 500, the S&P mid-cap and S&P small-cap companies. Um, The review, the research is the proxy statements of these companies, public companies, uh, primarily focused on the audit committee reports. And we um, look at 15 uh, categories or questions, and we uh, disclose what percentage uh, of each of these categories is, what percentage of companies are disclosing XYZ? So are they disclosing how they consider evaluation of the auditor? Do they explicitly state that their annual, um, sorry, that their evaluation is at least annual, things like that. So the the percentage that is disclosed does not necessarily mean that's the percentage of companies that are doing these things, but that's the percentage who are disclosing that they are doing these things. And over the eight years we've been doing this uh, study, we definitely have seen market improvement, quite a big increase over time uh, since the beginning. Uh, recently, it's it's crept up little by little, but we still continue to see long-term positive trends.
1: And that's great. And the thing that I like most about your study is that it does cover the small, the mid and the large size companies, which I think you know is really telling when you start breaking down some of the results within the barometer. So maybe we can get into some of the highlights of this year's barometer and some of the voluntary disclosure trends that have emerged now that you have the eight years of data that you mentioned, and maybe your thoughts on the reasoning behind where these trends have arisen from. Sure.
2: The most significant trend that we see is an increase this past year on disclosure of the audit committee's oversight of cyber risk, cybersecurity. We started tracking that five years ago, so a little bit more frequently, um, sorry, more recently uh, than the initial barometer, uh, because as you can appreciate the increased uh, interest in this topic. Um, So in the beginning, we saw market changes in the increase of disclosure, um, big jumps from 2014 to 2015 to 2016, and for the other types of disclosures, and then it tapered off a little bit. But cyber more recently ha- has had that, that big increase. And I think the reasoning is is simply because of the importance of the topic. I think it's become more and more prevalent for audit committees to focus on it. I mean, Amy, as you know, It's just emerged as a real concern for companies and who, from the board perspective, is responsible for oversight. How are they overseeing this risk? Um, That's what's important to stakeholders and investors. And so we began tracking uh, the disclosure.
1: Got it. Got it and i guess you know among the other things what what do you what do you think continues to be the most prevalent in terms of some of the, the other areas of the barometer the other trends that you're seeing
2: yeah so it's interesting the the what we we presented our results a little differently this year because when we looked at the questions and the results what we found is um several types of questions continue to increase gradually, but they're always, they've been consistently over the past few years, the the biggest disclosures, the most commonly disclosed. Um, And so what we see the most is discussion about how non-audit services may impact independence, and that's for S&P 500, 83%. It's also very high for mid cap and small cap. And we're so happy to see that high level of disclosure because there is, there's concern um, about whether or not auditors are independent, and so we we know audit committees are required. You know, Amy, audit committees are required to uh, pre-approve non-audit services, and we want to make sure that stakeholders understand that important role that the audit committees play. Um, similarly, disclosing the length of um, audit, the, the length of time the auditors are have been engaged, is a high level of disclosure. Um, You know, interestingly, we track that going back to 2014 and then more recently it became a requirement in the auditor's report. But one of the things we see a lot of disclosure, the good disclosure uh, that we like to see, and we provide examples of this, is really not just the length of of the tenure, uh, but how the audit committee considers it. And often when an auditor, audit firm has long-term tenure, There's uh, disclosure about uh, how the the Audit Committee thought about that from an independence perspective. Um, What are the benefits of long-term tenure? What are the threats of long-term tenure? And there's some examples that we we think are very uh, robust to explain the pros and cons. And again, the most important thing is that the Audit Committee weighed those pros and cons in reaching the decision to reappoint the audit
1: firm. Got it, got it. And, and I know there there's some other trends that maybe you're looking for more from audit committees. So maybe you can share a little bit about that.
2: Yes. Yeah, so there are a few questions that we don't see robust disclosure on. We don't see high percentages. And we really never have. <laughs> and so one of the things we draw out in our barometer in the text is this Just one one point to highlight is the discussion about audit fees and the connection to audit quality. Hopefully stakeholders are aware uh, that audit committees are are responsible to hire and compensate the auditor, the audit firm. Um, We think, however, the the audit committee's uh, responsibility and, and role in the fee negotiation could be more further explained, could be described further. Just to make sure that if a critic has skepticism about the audit committee's engagement, we think that some critics might think an audit committee is ceremonial in nature, and that's not been my experience, Amy, and I think you most likely, (laughs) you know, I, I don't think that is the case, but when we find, and actually we quoted this study in the barometer this year that was an academic study about the disclosure of audit committees in the selection of the audit partner, the engagement partner, and whether or not that disclosure um, was positively linked to audit quality. I don't think it's a there's a causal effect, but they did find there's, it's positively associated. And so similarly with fee negotiation, if somebody is concerned that there is a conflict of interest between Management and the audit. We want stakeholders. We encourage audit committees to share with stakeholders their role because they are not rubber. We don't think they're rubber stamping the fees. We think there is robust negotiation. Um, There's challenge. There's questions. There's we've heard from audit committees. They will challenge if it's too high to be efficient, but also if it's too low. Are there concerns about? Uh, cutting corners, and so trying to get out the the process of negotiation or the process of how they're involved in the audit partner selection. It, it's more it's not just are you involved, but how are you involved? And so some of the examples we get into, we like to see that description. We think it's it's helpful to um, to stakeholders. And and again, I think it's interesting that the the study found that it was in fact based on their analysis of how they. Um measured audit quality. They found a positive association
1: now thats that's excellent. and I, and I honestly, one of the greatest things about the barometer is, you know the examples that you provide around what you are finding as more robust disclosures, the companies, again, this is voluntarily reporting in the proxy right. because, you know there there's there's certainly audit committees that just, do the bare minimum and you know they they comply with the proxy requirements but then there's others that are using this as the opportunity to really share what they are doing what their responsibilities are and how they're fulfilling them so as an aficionado of the caq's thought leadership um, i really appreciate how your research team continues to capture that evolution so were, were there any examples that you pulled out from the current proxy statements that were particularly striking or telling for you all so we've gotten that feedback
2: before. I appreciate the, the comments. We we hear that the examples are helpful. We we hope they are. We think they are. 12 examples. So so just by the fact that they're in the barometer, we like them all. I mean, we're, this is out of 1,500 S&P, uh, 1,500 companies. But to highlight a few for your listeners, um, example one is MetLife. And we, put, we included uh, them because we thought they had a lot of good Um, description of the types of criteria they considered when ratifying the auditor. And so they talk about um, their process for monitoring independence, the firm's process, um, the description of the firm's internal quality control procedures, depth of understanding the MetLife's global business, the global footprint uh, of the audit firm, among among many other factors. Um, I will, however, say Then another example that I like um, is example eight, uh, which is S&P Global. And that is because they talk about uh, the benefits of of tenure, uh, like we were just talking about. And they have a very um, lengthy description about what they view as the benefits of the tenure. Enhanced audit quality, uh, continued mitigation against disruption risk, effective audit plans and efficient fee structure, and then they talk about independence controls, and again, sort of recognizing that um, even though the engagement partner is required to rotate every five years, if you've had the same firm for an extended period of time, they talk about the, their oversight, uh, their independence procedures, their limits on non-audit services, um, and all of these factors are mitigating safeguards against some concern about a lock, lack of objectivity, which I think is is important. And the the last example I might um, point to is MESA Laboratories. This is example nine. And this is about the selection uh, of the engagement partner. And and as we do our engagement with audit committees throughout the year, uh, we hear of different types of engagement when there's a selection of the engagement partner, when the engagement partner is rotating. And it varies. So the engagement of the audit committee varies. And I like that MESA says, um, the, the firm selects the candidates to be considered for the lead engagement partner role, um, and then that uh, candidate is interviewed by management. After that, the uh, management makes a recommendation to the committee, and then the the um, lead engagement partner um, is interviewed by the committee, um, and then there's an approval, approval process. We're not making a value as to that's the right process. There's a a number of variations. You could have the chair interview a slate of candidates. You could have the committee interview a slate of candidates. You could have um, no interview, but but it tells you what what the process is. And it's much more detailed than a sentence that says the committee is involved, which doesn't... Certainly, <laughs> yeah. and so you know, I think it just gives you flavor as to as to how the process, um, how the engagement partner is, is vetted, uh, which I think is is useful.
1: Now that makes a lot of sense, and and you just you kind of teed up my next question for you because you did mention the engagement that the CAQ has with audit committees, and so outside of this study, which is obviously kind of looking in hindsight at readily available information, you do a lot of in-person and engagement directly with audit committees as a key stakeholder group. So how do you utilize the information in this report to then encourage that dialogue with audit committee members subsequently?
2: Yeah, thank you for the question. And and one of the things we've done recently um, is uh, mobilize what we call an audit committee council, and and that roster is on our our website, Um, but it's a group of eight Um, audit committee members volunteering their valuable time. Um, And and the the way that we use that group and other engagement uh, outreach efforts is to really try to keep our finger on the pulse of what matters to audit committees. We, as an organization, are governed by um, member firms through our advisory council, working with people like you, Amy. We we get input from from accounting firms, but we really just don't want to be an ivory tower. and we we think regulators are, in my view, they're um, you know they're their servants of the public interest and um, in trying to do the best from a public policy perspective. But I do think audit committees are in the trenches. They're busy, they're practical. They care about audit quality. Um, they care about disclosures, but they're balancing a, a lot of information. And so, I think we just want to make sure that we are hearing from them what really matters to them. What do they really care about? And when they read something like the barometer, we had an audit committee council member tell us this year that he wasn't familiar with this with this with this publication. Very interested in it. And, um, you know, they like to benchmark. They want to know what are the best practices? What are other people doing? Doesn't mean do what everybody else is doing, but it's usually a good sanity check. And, and we hear that they, you know, appreciate being able to uh, take a look at examples and, and they'll make their own judgment. Oh, that makes sense. I like that. I'm going to copy that or, you know, we don't need to do that. And that And That's fine. So it's it keeps us current and keeps us grounded uh, so that we don't try not to um, publish things that are just a little bit too academic or theoretical. We really want to have practical advice that's meaningful and and, uh, can really have a positive impact on on audit quality.
1: Now, I think you do a great job with that. And again, I mentioned earlier that, you know, as as someone that works in the corporate governance space for my firm, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm always looking at tools and resources and some of the things that I really appreciate. And I know you've worked on a lot of them personally, are are the tools for audit committees that really cut into understanding various aspects impacting financial statement reporting and disclosure? Whether it's non-GAAP, whether it's you know the auditing of you know cyber and and, and other aspects of business. Um, I know you've recently released as an organization a lot around ESG and the audit committee's role in that and understanding that. So all of those things, I think, are incredibly important, particularly as emerging risks and opportunities continue to to pepper the audit committee, if you will, their audit committee agenda. So I really appreciate that. And and I like I like how you're using a lot of the material, or, or suggesting that the audit committees are using a lot of these materials as benchmarks, because that's in fact exactly what, what they are: is, is having data to actually make decisions and, and be properly informed. So that's that's excellent. Um, I have a kind of a, 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 another question around audit quality because that's a term that's incredibly important. I think oftentimes it's thrown around a bit loosely, but. You know it's an incredibly important issue for audit committees management auditors investors as well as the regulatory community. So despite the highly politicized agendas that are out there regulators regardless of party affiliation appear to agree on at least one thing increased disclosure is good for capital markets. So if you had the ability to predict where the next area of disclosure focus for audit committees would be I guess what would be included in that prediction.
2: Well, first of all, I agree with you that they we we are witnessing, experiencing, living through a real shift in the SEC administration. And um, uh, I'm not so young that this is the first time that I've been aware of a shift. you know we see this uh, in the past as well. But certainly, with Chair Gensler, uh, Leading the SEC, uh, brand new uh, board members just announced for the PCOB. We don't have a crystal ball, but but they do have. It is a different group of uh, individuals with most likely different priorities than their predecessors. Um, my prediction, Amy, is is uh, is not a guess. It it's based on the SEC Reg Flex agenda, as you're, which you're I'm sure familiar with. And so the SEC has has told us they have prioritized and are looking at um, disclosures related to cyber, uh, disclosures related to human capital, um, disclosures related to ESG. But of course, ESG is very broad. Um, DEI as well, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, especially on boards. Um, So those are all things that I think uh, audit committees should be aware of, um, should be looking to proposed rulemaking. I, I suspect it's challenging for individuals to keep up with all the proposed rulemaking and to write a comment letter. But I do, we do really encourage audit committees to. Be engaged with whatever professional organization could be the CAQ, could be NACD, could be an audit firm, you know, through different um, engagement and provide their input so that those of us who do write comment letters have their have can be informed. Um, I, I think increased disclosure has a role, uh, but we've heard from audit committee members it doesn't always solve the problem, and especially if it's not effective disclosure. So cyber is an example. As a layperson, not a cyber expert, you know, I think it makes sense to me that you that companies would be required to disclose when there's a breach. Um, however, again, as a layperson, I'm sure that's harder <laughs> said than done, as most of these things usually are. What is the definition of a breach? Or how, how do you really operationalize that? And what happens if you flood your stakeholders in the market with too much information and and then you lose um you lose sight of what's really important so i think it is a challenge to to balance disclosure and to provide you know the right level of disclosure um i've heard at a at different forums discussion about where these disclosures are going to be are they going to be in the 10k uh, are they going to be in the financial statements will be they be subject to the audit will they not i think we think a lot about what Investors want, and so it's really, in our view, not uniquely what's in the financial statements, what's subject to audit. Audit committees, we think, should really be thinking about what the company is disclosing broadly, and is there consistent messaging? And really thinking about what is the, what are the controls? Maybe it's more the disclosure controls and procedures versus sort of the quote unquote SOX 404B controls over information that investors might find decision useful. And so um, that's one thing we've heard a lot of audit committees talk about. Do they have a good understanding of what the company is publicly disclosing in a lot of different forms on their website um, to investors? And, you know, we most companies that we know of have a really robust process about information that's filed with the SEC, but what about other information? And so I think that's something a lot of other committees are thinking about.
1: I think a lot of companies are taking the opportunity that ESG is presented to do just that as well, because I think that's really kind of a, a a good a good capture of all the information that's coming out from a company. To your point, whether it's on their website, whether it's in other standalone reports that may you know capture the attention of regulators. I know you know recent comment letters from the SEC have been focused on climate disclosures, which yeah. is obviously another huge area of interest. And, you know, they're questioning whether, you know, things that are getting disclosed in a sustainability report should perhaps also be some way, shape, or form tied into financial reporting within the 10K. And, and has the company thought about that? And what are they doing about that? Not necessarily that they need to report, but, you know, has the materiality of those other uh, other disclosures been considered in the scope of financial reporting. So we're going to see a lot more of that. That's that was yeah. my prediction. Um, I probably I agree not, not a stretch. Yeah, no, <laughs> I predict that 100 percent. Climate related disclosures
2: in the financials, the impact. I think there is a big, big focus on that. And I think I've heard, you know, audit committees say, acknowledge some some industries, I think, already probably do that really well. And, and um, I think it's something that's emerging. And frankly, I've just heard some audit committee members say they haven't focused on it that much. And so I think auditors, management and audit committees all need to be thinking about it. Um, Amy, I think, you know, we have a, a good publication that provides examples of um, of where climate change may have a big impact on your financials and and where it may not. I mean, definitely, Depends on on the circumstance, but um, I agree with you. That's an important one.
1: Yeah, I I think you know the the bottom line under all this for audit committees is really continuing education, mm-hmm. and and whether you get that from you know governance sources, whether you get that from your auditors, whether you pick up CAQ's materials, I think it's just a continuing process for all. And and you you know we we always encourage our audit committee members um, to engage with us, to engage with others, and just remain that you know constant student, if you will, of, of emerging issues and, and areas of focus. So Vanessa, I wanted to thank you very much for your time today and look forward to hopefully having you on again. I'm sure we'll have lots to talk about in the, in the coming year. So thank you very much and thank our audience for tuning in to another episode of BDO in the Boardroom. Thanks, Amy.
0: For listening to BDO in the Boardroom. Past episodes and related insights are available at BDO.com/slash BDO Boardroom. Or you can go to iTunes or Spotify to rate, review, and subscribe. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of BDO. For more information on the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting and the resources we provide, visit BDO.com/slash BDO Knows Governance.